All right, before we get started, I just wanted to give a reminder of the goal of our instruction, this uh, kind of lecture portion of the teaching. Um, it is simply just to give the meaning of the passage or to do that to the best of our ability. So we're considering the historical and the biblical kind of context. What did the author, Paul in this case, mean to communicate to his original audience? And we have to work a little harder than Timothy to understand that because we're 2,000 years removed, right? And we have uh, a different culture. We're reading the passage in a language that doesn't translate perfectly and so forth and so on. So, so Javon, Jeff, myself, we spent considerable time studying these passages to help us understand the meaning of the text. And that's what we communicate in the lecture part of this. But we follow that up each week and have been with a reflective discussion in order to kind of land the text into our own lives, into our own culture. So we've left out of the lecture portion some of what uh, a traditional sermon that you're used to might include. I've literally cut things out of my notes. Why would I do that? Because one, I think they will sink in better and we will remember them better through dialogue about them. And secondly, because our application now won't be limited to what I alone can come up with. So, so after we understand hopefully very clearly and accurately what Paul is telling Timothy, then we can all put our heads together and ask the question, what would the Lord have for us? How would he lead us? And so I just remind you of that to say it's very important that you are participating in this gathering each week, um, our midweek learning. Because if you're, if you're just listening to this after the fact, just listening to the podcast, you'll miss out on half of the learning that takes place through the discussion. That's the way that we've designed it and set it up. So just a reminder there. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you haven't already, 2 Timothy 3. Just a bit of a review. In Ephesus, where Timothy resides, we have people, probably men, probably leaders in the church, who are infiltrating the church with their religious controversies and quarrels, and they're bringing dissension inside. And we've talked more and more, kind of as we study, about these teachers, and we're going to talk more about them today. If you remember a second big topic discussed in this letter that we talked a lot about earlier in the book is this idea of passing on the gospel. So we read about the faith that was passed from Timothy or passed to Timothy from his mother and his grandmother. And Paul talks about this good deposit that has been entrusted to Timothy that he is to guard. And We've um, seen Paul tell Timothy, hey, take this, what you've heard from me, and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So protect this healthy doctrine and pass it on. So you can kind of get the, the gist of this letter that while some people will come in and try to alter the message, as a church, we need to make a number one priority to guard the gospel and to carefully pass it along, that it wouldn't be tainted by other um, outside influences. And today we're just going to kind of continue on some more in that theme in chapter three here. This section is particularly important and meaningful to me personally, because I have seen what 
was happening, I think, in, in the Ephesian church. I've seen it up close at least twice in churches that I've been a part of in the 21st century. And, um, and, and we can read about things like this or see about, see things like this happening in the news in some of the more famous large scale churches in America. And, and what is happening here that I've witnessed and seen, it is, uh, villainous. It's, um, even satanic what you can see. And it's, it's heartbreaking really to see the people fall into this kind of deception. So, um, I mean, literally this passage, I feel like I can, I, I remember times that almost these exact things happened. Um, and this passage helps us work against these problems and prevent them uh, to some extent in the future for us who are willing to, to fight against it. So you'll get more of kind of that application part in the, in the discussion. So I hope you'll be involved with that. This passage, you can kind of divide it into two sections, verses one through five, which describe kind of generally the increasingly evil characteristics of people living in Ephesus and just people living in society. And then verses six through nine start to talk specifically about the certain men that Paul has been warning Timothy about. So Paul's going to start in this first verse of chapter three by describing the last days. This is a question that one of y'all had on Realm. Um, when are the last days? Well, simply, the last days are now. Uh, the last days in Scripture, um, usually, and, and certainly in this context of this letter, mean the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, or, or that time that we're even living in now. Well, how is that the, the last days? Um, that's how New Testament writers use that term oftentimes. I'll give you one example of that. Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, we read, in the past, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then he goes on to say um, in uh, verse 2, But in these last days, or now, God has spoken to us by his Son. So with the coming of Jesus, that's how God is speaking to us in the quote-unquote last days. You can also see the term used in Acts 2.17, James 5.3, uh, 1 Timothy 4. So, so this is just how the biblical writers tend to use this term last days. And we also know that it's referring to a time that would be at least within Timothy's lifetime to begin with, because in verses 5 and 6, we see kind of a present tense reality of the last days where Paul is telling Timothy himself, hey, avoid a present tense, avoid these type of people that are going to be presented in the last days. And he says, among those people are these. So present tense, you're going to see these things. So Paul and Timothy, um, they expected, and we think many of the 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 people and, and the times that the New Testament was being put together, we, we believe that they, even 2,000 years ago, were seeing themselves as living in the last days and always nearing those last days and, and expecting to see them and expecting to receive the, see the return of Christ. And so um, we also are expecting to see the return of Christ in the last days certainly applies to us in a similar way. Let's go ahead and read the passage, starting in verse 1. But understand this, 
that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. So first, generally speaking, Paul says that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. So now or very soon, this will be coming, Timothy. And here's what people will be like in those days. Now, again, we can pretty easily see the type of people that Paul described here for Timothy in the last days at that time. With uh, We can see that in people of our time as well, because we're also living in the last days. Um, in fact, every generation in between has seen these type of characteristics. We, we know that from the Old and New Testament that kind of moral decay that's described here will precede the return of Christ. And so we and Paul and Timothy and every generation in between, we see these types of people, these things happening, and we ask ourselves, is, is Christ going to now return? And again, it seems that, that Paul and Timothy thought that he might return very soon in their lifetime. And um, many Christians have believed for thousands of years that that's the case. I think that God has set it up that way and set up this terminology and inspired the writers of Scripture to use that terminology um, with this expectation that Christ could return at any time so that we don't fall asleep so that 2000 years later we're not like yeah i don't know when he's going to come it may be another couple thousand years but no we're in the last days so we are living as prepared for the return of christ so if you just look at that list um, you can see that it certainly describes our society uh, even that very first term lovers of self uh remember this is supposed to be a negative list but in our society doesn't the world just say that, that self-love is a virtue, right? And Paul's saying, no, in the last days, that's going to be a descriptive of um, those who are uh, not in walking in the power of Christ. So lovers of self, lovers of money, you go down the list. Abusive, that, that means um, like foul-mouthed. I think it's interesting uh, that included in this list is disobedient to parents, disobedience to their parents, um, right alongside of pride and arrogant and abusive disobedience to parents <laughs> um, kind of interesting that that's such a huge deal to paul and if you're a parent before you start thinking yeah kids see how awful this is and the list that it's included in i think that paul is likely writing to all kids with their parents even adult kids with their parents so it's not just point the finger at your kids, but parents 
no matter what the stage of life, are to be honored and listened to and uh, not disrespected. Okay, he talks about in his first letter to Timothy how we are to care for, especially um, our our family members and specifically widowed mothers. So, so he's talking to adults here too. And in the last days, he's saying people will treat their parents flippantly, disrespectfully, and obviously we we see plenty of that all around us. Um, Ungrateful is the next one after that. So yeah, we're ungrateful when we treat our parents the way that uh, many do. Um, other words, slanderous, that, that's like gossips. Um, yeah, you can read down the list. Brutal, that just means kind of a savageness. Uh, treacherous, that's um, not loyal at all, but just taking whatever side is going to give me the most advantage. Swollen with conceit. So... Um, that's how people will be in the last days, including the false teachers in the church. They will be displaying these things. Um, I should stop and say it's important for us to realize that when we see a list like this, we should also look at ourselves and not think that we are above any of these characteristics and make sure that we are putting off these old ways of life that we can find even in our own sinful nature. Something to notice about the list is that it starts and it ends with what these people love and don't love. There's actually four words that in the Greek all start with philos, um, which is like a love for, fondness for. They are lovers of self and lovers of money. We read in verse 2 and then in verse 4, lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. He's kind of setting these up as kind of a way to frame, I think, the, the beginning and ends of this list, what they love and what they don't love, to say, hey, when you start, when your affections change, when you, um, or when you're loving money, when you're loving yourself, when you're loving pleasure, and you're not loving God, then all of that stuff in between, that's the lifestyle that results. And that's how people will be in the last days. Verse 5 they have the appearance of godliness, but they're denying its power. Now, uh, you might say after that list, well, how does that even have the appearance of godliness? But just remember, the people that Paul has been describing earlier in the letter, they loved to sound religious. They loved to argue theology. They had the appearance on the outside of godliness. Now, maybe you can picture a person that this is describing, somebody who can argue about the minutia of scripture, somebody who seems to have um, a, a, a lot of knowledge about a lot of controversial biblical topics, and they understand the special meaning of Greek and Hebrew that, that you, you must not have known this before. You've never really known what this passage is actually meant. And that person can be really intimidating because of how much they know and how smart they come across. But then you go and you look at the life of that person and you start to see the gross disobedience to God that they're displaying and that they're actually not lovers of God. They're actually just lovers of themselves. And so you see this kind of shell of godliness that might sound impressive, but their words are empty. Paul describes that as uh, in his letter to Timothy is that they profess to know God, but that they deny him by their works. 
So um, I think I've got a quote. Yeah, Gordon Fee says, these people liked the visible expressions, the ascetic practices, and the endless discussions about religious trivia, thinking themselves to be obviously righteous because they were obviously religious. But as convincing as the men might sound, these teachers, the reality is they can't actually be godly because godliness takes God. It's produced by the power of God and those who love God and not themselves. So these people Paul is describing are posers. <laughs> they have no real power and their life is showing it. And Paul then in verse 5 here at the end gives us a simple instruction when presented with people who display this vice list. He says, avoid such people. Now that's an instruction that we have to be careful with because wouldn't it be easy that anytime we see one of these characteristics in somebody that we just write them off and say, okay, I'm not going to, I can avoid you. And, you know, Paul says, look, I can just kind of write you off. Well, this isn't a blanket statement that we avoid people who are in sin, however gross the sin is. Um, Otherwise, we'd have to avoid everyone, right? In the church, outside of the church, we'd avoid ourselves. So this instruction we have to realize is for the specific type of person that Timothy and and, and we, it's a specific type of person we're to avoid, who not only displays these characteristics on this list of vices, but they do so under the guise of godliness. Kind of propping themselves up, but then their life doesn't show the, the fruit of the Spirit. They're putting on this religion and they talk really big, but their life is contrary to what they preach. They're not showing the actual power of God alive in them. That's the person to avoid. Um, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.19 he says, I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist, consist in talk, but in power. So Paul is telling Timothy in Ephesus, avoid those who talk like this, but don't display the life-changing power of God. Or avoid these arrogant Christian posers. Why? because they can be very dangerous. Look at verse five, avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. This is the most disturbing part of the letter, okay? It just kind of sends a chill up your spine. Uh, the NIV translates it this way. They are women who worm their way. I'm sorry. They are the kind men who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. So some of these men are sneakily kind of taking advantage of gullible or weak or, or literally little women. Now that's not hopefully obviously in any way trying to suggest that women are inherently weak, but in the society in the particular time, women were 
virtually uneducated and at the same time there was this desire in society for seeking knowledge and religious truth so they had that desire but no background or education so that put them in a vulnerable or weak position also it says these women these particular women were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions the idea there is that the women probably had some uh, a, a strongly sinful past that was really deep rooted and kind of layer upon layer of sin something maybe that had never been dealt with that they were living in a lot of guilt for and something that these men were were bringing to them some of that teaching was alluring them somehow because of their past it also says of them that they were learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth now i don't know about you but i i see this more and more with both women and men, especially men now, learning but never knowing. It's those people who take in more information than ever, but they aren't getting any smarter. There are a lot of uh, influencers out there, right? They're really smart sounding voices who will tell you a lot of interesting and kind of philosophical stuff, but it all adds up to you really can't be certain about anything and somehow you're particularly virtuous if you arrive at that that you can't be certain about anything i've listened to a couple of podcasts before that kind of will feed this odd desire that we have to learn and never arrive at the truth and if we're feeding on that then we're like these vulnerable weak-willed women it's really easy to fall into because somebody who's saying, hey, I can't know this for certain. It, it kind of sounds humble and godly to say, well, I don't want to you know, speak too strongly here. And, and, wait, and we just can't know anything for sure. Um, but, but that can put you in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. Um, it's okay to be uncertain about things, theological things. Right. And, and there are many things that we will never know. And it's OK to have doubts about what you've learned and to call into question things that you've learned in the past. But the goal isn't to stay there. Right. It's not virtuous to never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The goal isn't to remain skeptical of what you've learned, but the goal is to grow in knowledge and, and, and faith. And God gives us his spirit so that we can understand and we're, we don't stay in the dark on these things. So what happened in Ephesus was these smart sounding men had picked out certain vulnerable women to prey on them. And they'd perform kind of these intellectual acrobatics to fool the women into these heresies that they're promoting and to keep them away from the truth. We think um, maybe because of what was written in the first letter to Timothy that these women were actually paying the men uh, for, for their knowledge and to hang around them in their homes. Paul then, um, in these last couple of verses, compares these men to Jonas and Jambres. That's a couple of men that we read about in Exodus 7 and 8. They're the, the wise men or the sorcerers that, that Pharaoh brings in, the Egyptian magicians, that when Moses and Aaron are performing their miracles before Pharaoh and they're bringing about the plagues, Pharaoh brings in these magicians, Jonas and Jambres, two of them, to try and replicate the miracles 
to to kind of say, oh, it's not just the power of God, but we can do the same thing. So Aaron throws his staff on the ground, it turns to a serpent, and Jonas and Jambres uh, are like, they do the same thing. And then Aaron strikes the Nile, and it turns into blood, and then the Egyptian magicians do the same thing with water and turn it into blood. And the frogs, they pull the frogs out of the hat or whatever, just like, and so um, the Egyptian magicians, were they actually doing the same things? Were they actually doing magic? Or was it just kind of illusion? I don't know. But the point is that they were opposing Moses and the truth of the power of God like the false teachers in Ephesus were opposing the truth. Jonas and Jambres were, were turning people from the truth about the power of God through their deceptive magic arts. And the false teachers in Ephesus were turning people from the truth about God. And um, that makes a lot of sense of verse 5 that says they have the appearance of godliness, but they're denying its power. They're doing the same kind of godly looking things and talking about those things, but they're not doing it in the power of God. And again, I know people have known people who are very much like this. People who sound really smart and well-reasoned. They might even know a whole lot about scripture. But then they start, they, they veer into talking about how they can live a morally good life as presented by the Bible. But they actually don't need God to do so. But they can kind of do that themselves with their own willpower. Or maybe with their, by following Eastern religions or meditation or a combination of those and it all comes back to, well, I can actually do that. I can do that apart from God. I can perform the same quote-unquote godliness because I'm disciplined enough. I'm determined enough. It's called humanism, right? And humanism in that we have people who have the appearance of godliness. They might do some really great things, but they deny its power. They they say it's really not God, it's me doing those things. And that's what the Egyptian magicians were doing. They're saying, well, we could do the same things that Moses and Aaron are performing and they're attributing to God. So it's no wonder that Moses, I'm sorry, that Paul calls these men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. You don't even need God, well, then you don't need the faith at all. And finally, to end here, just a, a really helpful verse, I think, to us. It says in verse 9, but they will not get very far, these, these false teachers, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was with those two men. So in short, their works will betray them. You can fool them for a while, but... Uh, like they can they can keep up the the look of a Christian for so long, but eventually they're going to be proven a fraud by how they live. Just like Jonas and Jambres, they got away with it for a while, and maybe it appeased some of Pharaoh's concerns about the power of God. They were replicating those miracles, but they couldn't eventually keep up. They actually didn't possess the power of God, right? And so the magic worked. They did the magic trick for the serpent and the water into blood and the frogs. But when Aaron brought forth the gnats, I think it is, they were unable to perform that trick. And they say, hey, that, that, was, the, that was the finger of God, we read in Exodus 8. That, that one couldn't be done by our own power. And it's kind of funny, um, in Exodus 9, uh, kind of to press the issue, uh, it's almost funny, 
though I wouldn't want to experience this, but it says the, um, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and all of the Egyptians. So this power of God was being demonstrated. And yeah, you're not going to be able to produce the boils or any other miracle now because you've been taken over by this miracle of God. So the, the point is, and this is a main point of the passage, is that it will be made plain who is true and who is an imposter. The false teachers will sooner or later display bad fruit, the, the kind that was described in verses 2 through 5. So no matter how well they talk, no matter how religious they present themselves, they will be exposed. And that goes along with just this general kind of biblical expectation that your deeds will ultimately expose who you really are. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Sounds a lot like those in Ephesus. He says, You will recognize them by their fruits. John says in 1 John 3.10, It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice the righteousness of God is, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Your fruits eventually will show who you really are. So this passage is describing negatively these divisive, deceptive teachers. So what good does that do for us? How does this instruct us? Um, we, we certainly need to be aware that there will be, and there are people who are disguised in the church who are looking to kind of make converts to their own self-empowered, self-glorifying false religion. And they will be convincing and deceptive. So we should be aware of that. But what else? Besides being aware, what can we do? And so now I want to allow the rest of your time for you to discuss how we can be on guard.